This is HPR episode 1762 entitled HPR Audiobook Club 10 and is part of the series HPR Audiobook Club. It is hosted by HPR Audiobook Club and is about 117 minutes long. The summary is, in this episode, the HPR Audiobook Club reviews Revolution Radio by Seth Kenlon. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Welcome to another episode of Hacker Public Radio. Today we have for you the 10th episode of the Hacker Public Radio Audio Book Club. And we're reviewing the book Revolution Radio by Seth Kenlin. I almost said Pirate Radio again. It's not Pirate Radio. It is Revolution Radio by Seth Kenlin. I'm Pokey, and with me tonight is Taj. What's good, everybody? And X1101. Howdy, folks. And uh, 5150 isn't with us tonight because he's uh, ha- had his recent tragedy. So I just, um, I know by the time this airs, it's it's probably going to be a little too late. But, you know, if you could spare a thought for 5150 or even a couple of bucks towards the uh, the fundraiser that's, uh, you know, trying to, trying to do our best to make him whole again um it'd be nice if we could and it'd be nice if you you had that in your heart to do um but anyway moving on um there's three of us tonight usually we have a few more so that means that you ought to come on with us next time we record revolution radio what did you guys think i have to admit that the first um chapter or so i really didn't like this book it took till probably the third fourth fifth chapter in before uh, the the hook really set, and I had to finish it. So definitely a slow start, partially because of the two different kinds of styles of audio, and the the little snippets were really hard to hear, and I'm like, oh man, if the whole book is going to sound like this, I'm barely going to be able to struggle through this. But then it switched to the more majority-type audio, and, you know, I slugged through the first couple chapters, wondering how it was going to be, and then it finally picked up. I unabashedly love this book. Um, I, 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 and I get that, like, it's not, especially at the beginning, it is kind of slow, it, and it's very kind of exposition-heavy right out of the gate. It's trying to explain this whole um, kind of brave new world, you know, that they've they've created from what's left of society. But there's so many things in this that just tickle specific, specific – I can't talk – specific things in my personality that I just cannot – not love this book. Um, the story is great, but I'm almost more in love with the world than I am with this particular story. Like, I'm happy with the story. I think the story is cool. It's nice to follow. It's got some cool characters in it. But really, I'm just really in love with that world. Oh, that's really cool. Um, because I 
really liked the story, but I had a lot of problems with the world. I could not get into it, which which took me out of the story sometimes, and I had to force myself back into it. Um, and I always forget to do this at the beginning of the show, but for the new listener, the way we do the book review is for the first part of our show here, we won't do any spoilers. We'll talk about the book in general terms, um, won't go too far into the storyline past maybe the first chapter or whatever, uh, but we won't do any spoilers. Uh, sometime after we're done reviewing as much as we can without talking about any spoilers, we'll take a, a short break where we each review a beverage of our own choosing, and then we'll get into spoilers at the end of that. So if you haven't listened to this audiobook or haven't decided yet whether you want to listen to it, um, the first part of the show kind of will we'll try to convince you uh, to listen or not, depending on uh, what you think of our opinions of it. So, and I always forget to do that right up front. I, sh I should, but um, there, that's out of the way. But yes, I really did like the story. I, I, I liked what happened, but the world I had a problem with. I, I still am not able to decide whether this book is set in a utopian future or a dystopian future. And I think it depends on which character you ask. I also think it d depends on your perspective of what a utopian future is versus what a dystopian future is. I think that's one of the reasons I like it is because it's neither but both. Um, you kind of have the ideas of a utopia that are developed now and how those play out and how those don't actually play out the way you think it would. I think this story very much contrasts uh, the, the book we did last month, uh, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, giving a very, very alternate future if things were to go uh, only slightly differently. Yeah, one of the things that makes them different is one of the things that I, I don't know, it, this one, there was a revolution. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that. And, oh boy, how do I want to say it? So, so this is the result of the world being violently destroyed, and now it's sort of being rebuilt. Whereas yeah. Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom... Uh, materials and energy and free time seem to be limitless and they could do whatever they want. The world was a, a plaything to them. Whereas here, there's still the, there's some sense of struggle, but there seems to also in this book be an unlimited quantity of supplies. It's transportation that they seem to have trouble with. And, and that, you know, throughout the book, I was having trouble with where like, Several times they're eating canned food. Well, if there's a revolution, and it seemed like it was some time ago and everything was destroyed, where's all this canned food coming from? Because I didn't hear anything about factories or or that kind of thing. You know what I mean? I got the impression it was all leftover canned food. Yeah, which would imply that they should run out at some point. But they just kind of, you know, ask for what everybody needs, and it seems to show up. Yeah, I kind of felt like it just, they never say, I'm trying to do this without spoiling anything, they never say the age of some of the characters, but I guess in my brain, I'm imagining them to be um, a little younger than maybe they are, because in my mind, even though the world has changed drastically, the revolution, in my mind, didn't happen that long ago, that like, it may, there may still be things around from that time pretty easily. Yeah, they do. They do a very good job of 
painting a canvas with very general strokes and allowing the the reader to fill that in as kind of they they're predisposed to do. Can you reword that for me just a little? Because I'm feeling dumb, uh, and also watching this ether pad work is fascinating. There are kind of broad strokes and general ideas, but some details are left out for kind of you, the the reader or listener, to fill in the blanks. Um, and people's even physical descriptions are kind of vague. People's ages are vague. Distances, general geographic location, how far things are apart is given in relative terms, but never in any kind of empirical way that we could measure and say, no, for sure, okay, this is in this place, it's this far away from here, this is how far they traveled, this is how old they are. It's fuzzy. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I can. I agree with that. And, and in that, a lot of the things that at least the narrator seemed to not care about and, and you know, versus the things that the narrator did care about, um, and she seemed to imply that the whole world thought somewhat similarly to her, if not exactly like her. Um, but a lot of it seemed against human nature to me. Um, you know, it's no spoiler to say that there was a lot of sharing going on in the book and that people took care of one another. And at least that was her view of the world. But as she went through the story, there wasn't, quite as much as that as I think she thought there was, maybe? I don't know. Did you get that impression, or am I... I don't know. No, I think her worldview is very... Um, trying to do this without spoilers is hard. Um, it's very informed by her ideals, and I think there are several points in the book where those ideals are just pretty openly challenged by the world around her, and she's kind of taken aback by it, almost like she lives in this version of nativity about um, that she thinks the revolution went in one way and it probably did but then people have moved past that point where she's still stuck in that point in some ways I guess that's kind of what I meant by whether that's a utopia or a dystopia kind of depends on the starting definition of utopia so you, you can't really tell someone it's utopia unless you know what they think utopia looks like right there's a big like thread through this whole story of anonymity and knowing the author that I understand why that's important to, to him. Um, but I think that that plays into it too, because certain characters are very um, really want to keep their, their own feelings secret and not let them out. And in doing so, it's almost like they're creating this world where people may not remember the ideals that started this world things make perfect sense to me um it's only been just recently that uh i think anyone in our community learned that klaatu had a real name at all let alone was willing to publish it and now i guess he's he's kind of out there as seth kenlin he's he's uh you know claiming some of this work that he's done he's done a lot of work too so i can i can i can see what you mean about that but also yeah it's like the the revolution is over and they're rebuilding the world but the struggle's not over there are there is still human nature to battle and i think we see a lot of that in the book even though even though people seem to profess 
the 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 community ideals there's there's a lot of it that just doesn't go away it's a lot easier to make a, a large societal change one big time than it is to maintain it and i think that that's kind of where this story happens it's after the big change and it's that maintenance period and everybody's kind of asleep at the wheel okay so first off i didn't know that this was uh plateau so that make that also adds some de- depth to the story I just heard your light bulb go off all the way over here. <laughs> I did too. I saw it happen. It was a flash out my window. So one of the things in the book that I'm not so sure, I mean, I liked it as part of the story, but I'm not sure I was comfortable with it, is all the lying that everybody does. I mean, nobody tells the truth about anything because they're they're just constantly trying to hide their their motives, as well as their identity. Now, I understand hiding your identity, but I mean, you just never... And it's not the fact that everybody was lying. It's the fact that everybody was comfortable with everybody else lying, and they just kind of went on about their business as if, uh, as if that didn't matter. And I think it does matter. You've got to be truthful with people to have any kind of real relationship with them. And if you don't have a relationship with people, you're on your own. I just don't think people were meant to live that way. So that's one thing about the author's perspective, or not the author, excuse me, the the narrator's perspective that I just couldn't bring myself in line with, though I accepted it in the story. I, I got that. I can see that the world they were living in made them feel like that was necessary. But at the same time, I, I... I'm going to add my own to what you were just saying there, Pokey, in that I don't think you can ever have a real community of people when the whole basis of every relationship is based on lying and false information and withholding information. It's only by you know openly collaborating and sharing yourself with the people you want to be in community with that community develops. And I think it's the worldview of the people we're dealing with. These The, the specific characters that we're dealing with deal with the world in a certain way and that's very representative of the way they deal with it um, i'm gonna cross the spoiler line for like two seconds because it's not really important um but it, it is totally this backwards where everybody's kind of metacognitively thinking about everybody else i mean there's literally a point where a character says well i know that they killed that guy and they know that i know that they killed that guy but we're gonna play it cool like nobody knows what's going on because you know, that's just going to make this go easier. I mean, that's just kind of the world they live in. Yeah, and I can get that in the context of their mission, but it seems like everywhere, everything was was more like that. I'm not sure how much of the outside world we really got to see, because pretty much everybody we meet has something to do with that mission. Yeah, that is true, even though the narrator didn't even... Well, I guess I can't talk about that, but you're right. And the narrator's worldview was extraordinarily local. I mean, she was very much focused on the extent of her senses. So when she wasn't at her console, it was as far as she could hear and as far as she could see was all she was really concerned with. And she was assuming that everybody felt and acted that way and that the world was taking care of itself because of it yeah she's the epitome of in my mind of an unreliable narrator um she (laughs) there are things that i I don't trust the narrator of the story and what she tells um 
in the story she's telling and the viewpoint she's telling it from. I just don't trust it. And I think that's what makes it interesting to me is going to kind of trying to judge what is real and what isn't real. Um, what's her, you know, reality that she's looking at versus what reality really is. Um, and I think that's it, pretty interesting to just kind of break apart. I also, I'm just throwing it out there because nobody said it yet. Can, can I get a what's up for a strong female lead character? Cause that's what this book has. And it's awesome. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but also, I didn't even think of it that way, uh, and I'm glad you pointed it out. Maybe I'll have to re-listen and, and think of it that way as her being like unreliable. My, my whole presumption with her, just based on the way that she executed her duties, is I figured if she's telling this story, she was telling it for posterity and therefore would be entirely truthful about it. It never occurred to me that that she could um, be lying or even be wrong about stuff. It, it just didn't occur to me, but you're right. She could just have gotten something wrong or could even be intentionally deceptive to the listener, but it didn't occur to me. But thank you. And see, I guess I didn't so much not trust her to be truthful. I, I kind of saw this as the lead's internal monologue, and so I assumed that she was truthful to herself but not always accurate so she is you know saying to herself and you know by proximity to the the listener what she truly believes is the way the world is whether or not that has any bearing on reality i, I kind of my my head cannon, I guess, if you're going to call it something. Um, I kind of imagine this whole story because this is the second time I've gone through it. I kind of imagined it as, um, without spoiling, something she would leave in her console to help somebody else. It just even though they would have an idea of what happened to, to maybe lay it out in, in, her, in the main character's terms. I don't think if she would be untruthful intentionally like deceptive i think it's just you know you hear two i mean it's the rashomon syndrome you hear two people tell the same story they're going to bring their worldview to it and i just think that the main character's worldview is so strong that it would be hard for her to tell a story without that just completely saturating the whole story yeah and that's another thing that made me think that you know while i was listening it made me think that she was being honest as a narrator was that she was pretty good about saying when she didn't know if something was the truth or not or, or didn't care whether it was the truth or not um, or, or didn't understand or didn't know something. I thought she was pretty good about that. She, as the narrator, didn't seem to make a lot of assumptions. No, I don't think she, she seems like the type A engineer hacker type. I don't think she would make a lot of assumptions just as a person. I think she would try to you know root out everything if she could. I see her worldview as very much a lot. She looks at the world as inputs and outputs. So uh, everything has kind of a logical flow to it. And it seems like she tries to figure that flow out. Yeah, I definitely get the kind of hacker engineer vibe from her. And that does very much color someone's worldview a specific way. I, d I wanted to talk briefly with you guys to see if it was just me or if anyone else had some significant technical difficulties actually accessing the book, like getting the files, digging into it. I know I grabbed – Pokey had re-encoded it to MP3, and then I ended up grabbing that and writing a little bash script that 
read in all the files, turned it into an XML file, and then I pulled it down from my own web server as an RSS feed so I can continue to look listen to the episodes uh, in my RSS podcatcher because that's the way I prefer to consume them. Yeah, there seem to be significant technical difficulties uh, from the people on the HPR mailing list uh, getting and listening to this one, um, which I was completely unaware of. Uh, you know, at the time that that um, that you picked it, this was your pick, wasn't it? X one one zero one. Nope, I think it was Taj's pick. Yeah, it was mine. I probably should have looked at the site and checked it before I recommended it. No, no, it's totally cool. I'm, I'm not trying to assign blame. Uh, I just couldn't remember who assigned it. Did, had you heard it or read it before you picked it? I had read the ebook and I had downloaded the audiobook and my intention was to go back and listen to the audiobook at some point anyways whether we did it for the for the audiobook club or not um once I opened it up I realized that like some of the files were corrupted and so I went back and tried to download it again and I got it and some files were corrupted and I did it like three times until I got all of them uncorrupted except for one and what I wound up doing is just taking that one it was only like two paragraphs of the the end of the the chapter and so i just opened the ebook and read the last two paragraphs and moved on it was not worth my time to try to download it again gotcha okay yeah when i downloaded it the first let me see how did it go i downloaded it using down them all which seemed to grab them without a problem but it did seem to take a little bit of time and then i extracted them okay so yeah i downloaded them on my old epc i mean like it's a 701 it's the first gen epc and i extracted them directly to my sd card my micro sd card that i use in my mp3 player and all the files were there and they all had data they all were of you know significant size um then when i went to play them they just didn't work they just didn't play and I took those files, and what did I do? I think I re-downloaded it on another computer and extracted them right on the computer and then tested them, and they played fine. Probably an M player, I think, is what I had installed on that one. might have been VLC, but they played fine in there. So I copied them over to my MP3 player, and again, they did not work. Uh, so whatever the problem with them, um, you know, M player or VLC, whatever I had going, was able to just chew through it, and it was okay. Other well, that's because people... that's because those will play anything. Yeah, well, other people couldn't even get the the tarball untarred. They 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 couldn't you know uh, uncompress it. So yeah, I just one by one uh, converted, reencoded them from MP because they opened in in uh, Audacity just fine as well, and I reencoded them to MP3. And what I suspect is the problem that my MP3 player had with them is that the he I think he used an unconventional tag in the metadata to add a, a the art the album art to it and maybe he used something that uh, iTunes wants but Aug does not because it was not it was not the the Aug ta- the standard Aug tag for album art. Yeah, I did a similar dance with mine. I had I downloaded the AUG because you should, if you have the choice between AUG and AAC, definitely go with AUG. Yeah. Um, right. And so I tried to I, I put it on my computer, tested it out. Okay, it plays. So I threw it on my uh, my clip zip that I have Rockbox on, and it was like Mm-mm, not happening. So uh, I, I have a bash script to like change things from 
hogged to MP3, and it, it breaks my heart every time I have to fire it up, but I did to re-encode it. And see, yeah. what, what I ended up doing was I took the uh, – Pokey was kind enough to throw out uh, his re re-encoded versions. I grabbed that. I initially tried to use socks to speed them up in the file and then listen to them, and that was horrible. Don't anyone ever do that unless you're much better at using socks than I am. It, it was bad. And so I ended up just creating that uh, XML file, throwing it all up onto my web server, and then using the native application to change the speed instead. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm I'm still I'm curious, and I may try it just to see. I I don't think that the log encoding was done wrong. I think it was just that tag. I mean, it, it, those are the only two things I changed were re-encoding it to MP3 and changing that tag. But I didn't know about the tag until after I had already decided to to change it to MP3. So I just kind of went that route. I, I may not have had to re-encode. I didn't even think of a tag or even look at it. I just re-encoded it and it worked. So I just dropped it there. I wonder if your uh, script that re-encodes, does it strip the tags out of it? I would have to go back and look. I'm not sure. It's not actually on this computer that I'm on right now. It's on my laptop. Yeah, I'd be interested. It was definitely an interesting adventure in just getting to the book. And then you know, I still very much enjoyed listening to it and look for, looking forward to you know, our monthly chat about a book. I just thought of it. Maybe it's like this huge like alternate reality game. Like You have to hack your own audiobook to be able to listen to it to, to get into the world. <laughs> that's that's kind of what it felt like. And uh, I wasn't too worried because I, I kind of figured that you guys would figure it out. And I also figured if I didn't get it figured out, I'd still be okay because I have a paperback version of it on my bookshelf. So I was going to be okay either way. Eh, we're a persistent enough lot. I figured one of us would figure it out. And overall, I think it was worth it. It was, it was the the story itself was worth, you know, that work to to hear it. I completely agree. One of the things I forgot to mention earlier, and and I think it's another thing that just kind of if you if you know Klaatu, it just kind of makes sense. That to me, reading this was very cinematic. Like I could see this being turned into like a short film, like really easily. Um, and I don't know why. Because it's it, it almost seems like it would be not good at that because it's very internal dialogue. But I just it was very visual to me for some reason. Short film. This has got more content and a better story than most you know full length films that are now produced. That's why it would be a short film because nobody in Hollywood would think that anybody's smart enough to actually go watch two hours of this. Oh yeah, I was gonna say this is this is way too heady to be a movie nowadays. This might have been made in the seventies, but not today. Like, See, if Michael Bay made this into a movie, there would be four or five times the explosions, aliens and or robots, bonus if it's robot aliens, and some romantic interest thrown in there for good measure. Exactly. And this, to me, this is more of like a Logan's run. Like, hey, check out these concepts. Think about these things while I tell you a story. In your Michael Bay list, you forgot turtles with teeth and nose holes. Oh, they've always had that. Knock it off. Yeah, that one I don't blame on Michael Bay. I saw the trailer for that movie, and I was like, if I was like eight or nine, that movie would scare the ever-loving bejesus out of me. So what do you guys think about that, though? Like, does this, does this remind you 
more of the genre of like the 70s style of movies like i don't know if you guys ever saw the illustrated man or logan's run or there's a couple others from that era that were you know had way more silence and background noise than dialogue yeah, I kind of like the vibe I got. Um, you said Logan's Run. Yeah, kind of. I get that. Like the 70s, like kind of, um, I don't want to call it independent, but just sort of like that kind of vibe of sci-fi movies. Like I'm thinking like the first Mad Max, like where a lot of it's a silent movie. Like you're just kind of watching the scenery and, and letting that tell the story. Um, I did totally get that kind of vibe. And I agree. It's not a movie that would be made today, but I could see it being done very almost like an art house kind of deal. And I'm way too young to have seen any of those. The only 70s movies I've seen are some Bond films and Star Wars, and neither of those really fit the description. I wasn't alive for it, but I've seen them. Yeah, yeah, same here. I've, I've gone back to watch a few of them that were, you know, recommended. Like, Logan's Run is is worth a watch, but you can't watch something like that expecting a Michael Bay movie. <laughs> well, I'll add it to the list. Yeah, that... And if you've never seen, oh, help me out here, Taj. THX, I always get the number wrong. 1138, I think, maybe. Yeah, probably. It's George Lucas's first, I think it was his first film, uh, or at least his first major film. That that movie's incredible. I thought American Graffiti was his first film. I, if I remember correctly, THX is like, I want to say it was a student film or something. It had to do with his film... Uh, school stuff, and then it just kind of turned into a movie, if I remember the story correctly. Oh, okay. E- either way, put that one at the top of your Netflix queue, because it's really good. I am not a Star Wars fan, but I am a fan of that movie. Alright, so has anybody got any other pre-spoiler things to say? Anything about the reading or the sound quality or anything like that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's almost... I don't think it's too much spoilers to say. They almost sounded like pre-recorded broadcasts or propaganda pieces, and the sound quality on those was really hard to digest. It could be because of the fact that I listened to everything at like 1.8x, and that might have ruined it for me, and so that could very well be my fault. But when No, I initially... not your fault. He he munged those intentionally. I'm, I'm certain of that. Okay, those were really hard to to hear, but it did feel kind of on purpose hard to hear. And But the actual narrative of the story i thought the audio quality the production quality was very good yeah i think the especially the uh the little interludes with the revolutionary catechism um i don't think he is a ham radio operator but i know he talked to a bunch of them to write this book that is definitely like a sound you get used to because ham radio is never clear it's always kind of that static you thing you just kind of get used to listening through it almost and so it kind of added um a little bit of i i won't i guess authenticity to it you kind of like this is something that would would be broadcast on on their network that probably the the commies would listen to and it's sort of like they're just passing around amongst themselves i want to come back to this after the spoilers because my opinion of it changed yeah the, the commies i thought that was an interesting word every every time that came up i, I thought it was kind of neat that uh you know the the communicators called themselves commies not necessarily because they were communists but because they were communicators i thought that was a really 
interesting uh, dichotomy there because you want to think communist every time you hear that. But really, the whole world is a commune, and, and the word communist wouldn't have the same meaning. Yeah. Yeah, I, I assumed that it was a very intentional word choice. And I think it's one that would turn off a certain kind of person, someone who wasn't, uh, you know, willing to, to change their mind about preconceived notions. I think that would be a big turnoff. I don't think, you know, I think there's a certain type, a certain kind of person that wouldn't get through the first chapter of this book. Well, and I mean, how many times have, have the proprietary software industry labeled people who use the GPL as, as commies? I mean, like it's almost, I kind of feel like it's almost taking it back a little bit. Like, okay, you know, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll use that insult and kind of turn it around and use it. I'm not sure if that was before or after we were called un-American cancer. <laughs> I don't I don't think it holds the same meaning uh in the free software world as it does in the uh Cold War world though. Oh Steve Bomber, we already miss you. <laughs> but to your point, Pokey, I think the same people who wouldn't be able to remap that word or wouldn't be willing to are the same kind of people who hear the word hacker that we use in very much one way that mainstream media uses in very much another way and cannot distinguish the difference, can't see the difference. Yes, thank you. And I have to say, I really enjoyed her reading of this. I don't think she was as polished as a lot of the people maybe who read on, on patio books. It's almost as if they pre-read, you know, each each paragraph or each page and then go through it and are a bit smoother. And, and she might've been reading this maybe not for the first time that she read the book, but she wasn't reading it for the second time in, in 10 minutes. I, I didn't get that impression, but it's almost like it should have been read that way. It, it almost, it, it felt like that's the way this should have been narrated. I completely agree that almost not quite unpolished feeling gives a little more authenticity to the world that's been created. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I think reading it the second time, it kind of popped into my head that this might be something she was leaving inside the console to, to leave for somebody else. Is that because they, they, there were mistakes left in, and I have a hard time believing Klaatu would let a mistake slip through if he found it, if it wasn't intentional. Oh, I found one or two, but they were more editing mistakes than... Uh, or I shouldn't say editing, editorial mistakes than technical ones. There there were not many technical mistakes in this. There was a couple of double reads, and there were a few of them in like the same episode towards the end, so I f it felt like maybe that episode might have got rushed, but I think there were like three in one episode and one in one each and, and two other episodes for, for double reads, which is a really low count um, for any audiobook these days it seems i can only re remember one being noticeable but i am still fairly new to the whole audiobook world i've not done that quite so much but i only noticed one where it was well noticeable well you're also doing it at like super high speed and i think they're less noticeable when you speed up the audio like that I also thought just like the tone of her voice was very relaxing like and it was almost um, it, because she is the voice of this character, it kind of told you what her headspace was a little bit, that it was just so, so calm and just kind of even keel. Like, 
the, the narrator never gets excited. It's just all very matter of fact and very, very stable, but very pleasant at the same time. Like it's not something you listen to and it drums on. It was, it was very, it was just a nice voice to listen to. I think pleasant and stable, but she'd still shoot you if she had to. Right. She's totally. We keep going back to Star Wars on the show. She's totally the Han Solo. Like you know, I, I do it because I have to. I'm not going to get excited about it. I mean, I'll shoot you in your face if you, if you, if it'll make a deal. It was weird because she reminded me a lot of Klaatu. I think if Klaatu had read his own work, it would have sounded just like this, but less female. You know, not female. I haven't read his other books yet, but it definitely, like, the the writing has the same cadence as his speaking. And you could totally tell, like, if you put that in front of me and didn't tell who it was and said, somebody on in the Hacker Public Radio community wrote this, I'm about 90% sure I'd be able to nail it down to Klaatu. Yeah, yeah, I think so. See, I didn't, but again, I'm fair. I'm still newer to the community, haven't listened to a huge amount of his work, but there was an odd familiarity to the whole thing, and now that I now that those dots are connected, it it seems a little more obvious. Light bulb just keeps getting burned. Oh yeah, I went from incandescent to C- uh, CFL, and now I'm burning some LEDs here. It was I, I liked another thing I liked about this one was that there wasn't uh, opening and closing music and and credits and advertisements or whatnot at you know at each episode i had no idea what chapter i was listening to or what or what actually uh, she announced the chapters but i had no idea what episode i was listening to because they flowed pretty seamlessly into one another and uh, only once did i ever notice a, a a difference in sound quality that made me think it was a different uh recording session it, only one time did that happen i i really liked that i like being able to breeze through the book like excuse me breeze through the book like that i kind of felt that way just reading the written one too like it's not we were just talking about a book before we started recording it's not like that where it's like you know leave you on the edge of your seat kind of like have to read the next one uh gotta get my next hit this was just like a slow steady roll that like was just easy to keep going it wasn't I could put it down, but I didn't want to. Like, I just wanted to kind of keep going to see what happened. I wasn't pressing. It wasn't a big pulse-pounding thing. I just kind of wanted to see where it was going. Yeah, it did have a different draw, but it was the same result of, I want to keep listening to this until it's over. Yeah, and I was neither stressed about listening or not listening. The The pace was relaxed enough that I, it never felt cliffhangery if I ever had to put it down or walk away from it i wasn't like oh man i can't wait to get back but then while i was listening i was never like i wish i was doing something else either i I just it was very comfortable pace and and just you know no cliffhangers really to speak of and just uh pleasant i don't know about you all but i'm starting to get thirsty yes yes me too i concur so I'm going to step away and acquire mine if you guys want to start chatting about yours or if you want to wait for me, whichever. Uh, silence is seamless in the output file, so we'll wait for you, and no one will even know. Man's got a big house. All right, gentlemen, thanks for waiting. I am back. Cool. What'd you come back with? You you uh, got what's probably the most exciting beverage, so why don't you go first? I have been searching for like the last six months or so for this beer and I finally found one on Sunday completely by chance and I absolutely had to pick it up so that I could you know drink it and share it with all the lovely people I found a dogfish head 120 minute IPA 
And for as much as this cost me, it had better be amazing. Oh, really? They got those on the shelf at the store that I'm at. I, I never thought to try one because I don't really usually care for IPAs. Well, if you don't care for IPAs, I can't imagine you'd really care for a 120-minute IPA. So how many minutes – now, that must be how many minutes the hops are allowed to soak or something? Yeah, Dogfish Head does a 60, a 90, and a 120. I've had 60 and 90 already. 60 is not really hoppy enough for me. 90 is very good, and this 120 smells amazing. Cool. So it's got some – giving it a sniff here. It's got some citrusy and hoppy notes to it. Maybe a little bit of pine, but not not overwhelming. Yeah, hops always kind of remind me of pine or, or juniper. Ah, uh, you you might like this. It's almost got a, it's got the same kind of creamy, silky texture of like a stout or a porter. The hops are not at all overwhelming. I've had hoppier, but I've not had better hoppier. Ooh, I like creamy and silky. It doesn't look like it would be. It looks like um a mid amber color, but the, the texture is very much got that that silkiness going on. That's very nice. Cool. Is it real sudsy or stingy on the tongue going down, or is it kind of mellow that way? It's very, very mellow. It's almost got a little smokiness to it as well. It's It's got a lot going on. And for 8.30 for a 12-ounce bottle, it had better. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times the IPAs seem to be like... Um, almost over carbonated to me where where the carbonation tries to kind of sting the tongue you know what i mean uh, yeah last night i had a, a baxter's stowaway ipa and it was very it had a very large head on it this is there's no head at all it's not overly uh carbonated it's it's very nice cool taj how about you what have you got in your uh in your glass tonight well I'm a little disappointed, but um, I would, went to the store right before uh, I came home from work today. Now I'm just going to buy some lemonades and make some of my fantastic homemade lemonade that I make. Um, and no joke, I get there and there was a sign that literally said, and it's best like it looked like Sharpie, no lemons today. Um, so there were no lemons to make lemonade. So I actually bought some pre-made lemonade and it's just not as good. It's a little too sweet. Oh, that is sad. Is it good? high fructose corn poison in the ingredients list? Is that like the first thing? I, I'm sure it does. I don't know. It's not bad. It's just I, I, I like my lemonade a little more tart and less sweet. Um, and this is just like almost so much sweet. I feel like I'm just injecting sugar water straight into my veins. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I don't like overly sweet drinks. People get mad at me when I make the like Kool-Aid or whatever. Whatever drink, they get mad at me when I make it. And oddly, I like a little bit of coffee with my sugar. Uh, I'll take my coffee with uh, coffee. Thank you. I second that opinion. Yeah. So what was the, was there a particular brand you got or is it just <laughs> Ajax brand or, or uh, Acme brand lemonade? What do, you, what do you got? It is simply lemonade. And I'm looking at the nutritional facts and you don't want to know. <laughs> what is that there is 11% lemon juice in here. That's all I'm going to say. And it has lots of natural flavors, but they don't say what those are. <laughs> I love that. I love when they just write natural flavor. I'm we, totally... got it. we got it in nature. We promise. 
What what does nature taste like? I, I still haven't figured that one out. I'm drinking it right here. Apparently a lot of chemicals. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm totally putting this nutrition label in the show notes. Excellent. Oh, and I've got... It, it's fairly mundane for this time of year. I've got a Sam Adams summer ale. And uh, I don't know. I think it's pretty drinkable. It it falls a little flat on the, the flavor. You know, the flavor profile. It kind of fades quick. It doesn't last long. But I think that makes it a little more drinkable and a little more... Uh, generally acceptable. For instance, my wife bought this six-pack and took one out and opened it for herself, and she never drinks beer, but but she drank one of these. So I, I think it's a little more acceptable to everybody else, but it, it's by no means bad. It's um, fairly citrusy. It's got some lemon in there. It's uh, I don't taste any hops whatsoever, which, you know, I don't like no hops, so it, it, it could stand to be a little hoppier, to be honest with you. Um, it's a little, little sweet, little citrusy, not too bubbly. It, it's a summer ale. It's it's real drinkable. It goes down real easy, and it's uh, fairly refreshing. Really, what beer couldn't stand to be a little more hoppy? There are several that I've had that I just I couldn't take it, man. When when the IBUs go up past, I don't know, maybe sixty five, I I think it's it, you're good. You can stop. I think past about. 45 or 50 it starts making the beer less enjoyable but yeah you get up to about 65 in the IBUs and it's a little too much the label says this has grains of paradise in it and I have no idea what that is or what that means I bet it's healthier for you than natural flavors (laughs) you could be very right about that I bet it's more natural and more flavorful than natural flavors I love when it says natural and artificial flavors and still won't tell you what any of them are. So, are we ready to spoiler the crap out of this book? Yes, let's do. Something that I noticed after I listened to the book, or I kind of started to think about it while I was listening to the book, but really kind of connected afterwards, was all of the locations that the main character visited sounded like radio station call signs to me rather than actual town names. Yeah. In the written book, they actually, um, she says them like she phonetically sounds them out to try to make a word out of it. But in the book, it's like, um, like she says, KCAG, it's KCAG. Um, so like, it's, it's a lot more obvious in the written word than it is in the audio book. Okay. See, I guess the, what I had pictured was, you know, they had started out in the old world as radio station identifiers and had become the names of the towns where they take KCAG and turn it into KCAG as the name of the town. Me getting super nerdy and just kind of knowing about this, it seems to me like they're, these radio towers are not broadcast towers um, because she talks about the range of them and it's not very far. Um, it seems a lot less than your typical broadcast tower, so I'm thinking it'd be something like a two four or a two meters or four hundred forty centimeter range, um, basically your average um, local repeater for ham radio. So you're you're looking at you know 
maybe 10 miles, something like that. And I may be grossly overestimating that. Um, but, you know, good reception. And that's why, because at some point she talks about that's why the settlement sprung up where they did. It's because that's where they had to put the towers. Oh, and see, I got, I guess the, the way I had pictured it was everything except KCAG had been repeaters, but KCAG was an actual signal tower. It could be. Um, I know they mentioned other cities that have call signs, and that may be the case. Maybe there's like a, a hierarchy of, you know, big repeaters and then smaller or big, you know, signal generators and then smaller repeaters that spread that out. Yeah, and I know very little about radio, but, um, you know, a little bit about computers and what's going on. And, and one, a couple of things that threw me off when it came to that was uh, the data burst that came at the end of all the transmissions that was um, like a, a, a compressed and, and digitized uh, form of everything that got transmitted and they were supposed to archive everything. Um, everybody has their own local archive and that's good for redundant backups but where are they getting all this storage you know i mean that's that's a lot they're gonna they're gonna fill what they have fast and it doesn't seem like they've got you know a whole big storage array and this is unless this is so far in the future that you know technology has just progressed but then again it doesn't sound like it has because they're still able to solder and repair circuit boards you know even though those were fairly you know generic circuit board which uh, i mean at this point most circuits on anything useful are really not designed to be user repairable. Not that people can't repair them, but, you know, it, not from experience, but from people's anecdotal evidence 20 years ago, you know, you could repair your own circuit boards, and now, you know, it's cheaper just to replace them. Yeah, it's a way more specialized skill. And as far as the data, I, I'm thinking if you were going to store... Because I'm thinking about you can send data uh, as far as text to data over with audio tones pretty easily. Um, if you took those audio tones and converted them into text files, that would probably be a very efficient way of storing that stuff. But um, it, I don't know. It seems like with the technology they have, they'd be able to do that. I mentioned earlier that there was like an editorial thing here and there. Um, and I don't remember, there was only two of them that I really noticed I, uh, while listening. And one of them was kind of in the first third of the book, and I forgot what it was. But towards the end of the book, something that um, that the, the narrator said uh, when she set the charges and uh, exploded the charges, she said, in real life, explosions go like this, and then, you know, described it. And that felt really out of place because everything in this story was in real life. There was no more it didn't appear to be any more fiction. There was no TV, no you know, radios. There weren't any books. She talked about the there being a waste of paper and it didn't seem like anybody had you know, electronics other than the uh, the commies. So it, that was that seemed, seemed like a very weird turn of phrase uh, from this particular character in this particular setting. Yeah, and I actually didn't catch that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, it, it's feasible that she would remember before the revolution and maybe as a kid 
having seen that stuff and maybe that's her just saying that but i would think after living in this world for a while she'd probably purge that out of her brain pretty quick yeah and and also it doesn't seem like you'd have to explain to someone how explosions happen in real life if everyone had lived through a whole bunch of them and it seemed like everyone had yeah and especially if the the other people that you're talking to were revolutionaries or part of the same revolutionary group they probably know how to blow some stuff up yeah exactly and that was something if we could go back to the the thing we were talking about uh the the transmissions that um were uh i think x1101 was saying they were kind of hard to hear yes yeah yeah they were hard to hear so at the beginning of the book i thought that those were kind of I thought that they were transmissions. They had the feel of, of a shortwave radio transmission. They they had that same kind of uh, like tube radio uh, sound to them. Um, and, and I kind of thought that maybe these were something archival or something to be passed on. But later, in, later on in the book, I kind of changed my mind about that. And I thought this was more of her... Um, repressed memory. I mean, it might have been indoctrination. It might have been the, the kind of propaganda that she would have studied to become the, the revolutionary that she had been at one point. But I, I, I thought of it, you know, the reason that it was staticky was not because it was being transmitted, but because it was deep in her memory and she was trying to put it behind her, trying to forget it. Because she, at the end of the book, she was not comfortable with blowing up the station with living people in it. Um, whereas like, you know, in her past, uh, you know, not occurring in the book, but, you know, flashback past, she would have done it without hesitation. Yeah. I never, I don't think I ever kind of took it as literally being part of the recording. I, I always kind of assumed it was just sort of like, uh, setting the, the scene a little bit. But I mean, that does make sense. That it would be like far back in the back of her head, just kind of like a, a brainwashing kind of coming forward. That's a cool way of looking at it. It all had a very 1984 propaganda announcements type feel to it. I remember at one point reading the history of that, that actual book that he quotes in this, and it was interesting, and then I promptly forgot it. Where did you read that? I remember when I read the book, I'd never heard of that. And um, so I looked it up and I think it was just like Wikipedia is as far as I got, because, you know, that's research. And uh, it had a history, but I, I kind of forget what it was. It, it, it's a historical document. Oh, OK. That's pretty neat. I'll have to go look that up. That does sound interesting. Boy, now that we're spoiling it, I feel like I have less to say about it than before we were spoiling it. Most of it that was particularly intriguing was kind of the setting and the idea behind the whole thing. Whereas the, the plot itself was, you know, kind of slow. And I feel like, I almost feel like we've already discussed it just in talking about the, the setting and everything. Well, I found it really interesting. I, I'm agreeing with you and I'm finding things that I still do want to talk about is one of them was how, appalled the main character was that the uh the handyman that she met had a stash of things that she kept all to herself and that was really telling of the social attitudes of the time 
right, or at least her social attitude, which is something you guys convinced me of earlier, was that maybe the whole world doesn't act like uh, the ideals that they, they claim to believe in. Um, well, one of the things I found, another thing I found really fascinating was the use of free software licenses as social contracts for you know land use or you know community management it was it was very fascinating yeah but even that was kind of it was odd in the way that it was used because i mean she clearly took part in the revolution that created the world that she's living in. So it happened within the span of a human lifetime, yet no one could remember what GPL stood for in the GPL land. You know what I mean? Oh, see, that's not the story that I got at all. I got that she was part of a post, almost a post-revolutionary cleanup group where she was raised in the post-revolutionary period, but where they were still, the revolution had happened, but they were still sweeping away all the vestiges of the old world. Okay. Because she because she always referred to it as the old world, like it had always been before. In my brain, I did the heavy medium. I just assumed she was really young when the revolutionary when the revolution happened. So, like, I'm imagining her being on that cleanup crew and probably being like 13, 14, and doing like this ridiculous, like mass destruction. And that just sort of formats who she is later in life. So, like the whole child soldier thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, because I think, like we were talking about when we were talking about the narrator, how like calm and cool she is. Because she lived through all the craziness, and she had to be calm. And like that's what she was raised in. And so, like all this craziness that's happening on their mission, you know, the backstabbing, and even when they come out and say, "Hey, guess what? We're this new, you know, revolution based on your revolution, and and we want you to help us." this um she's very still even keeled like she never gets excited about it she never gets mad about it she's just like oh this is happening i almost got the idea at some points that it wasn't calmness but shell shock that you know she went through all this destruction and caused all this destruction and you know now she's like okay well we destroyed all this for a certain set of ideals, so why wouldn't everyone be living for those ideals? I mean, all this destruction happened, didn't it? Right, almost like post-traumatic stress disorder. And she, I, I see herself as isolating herself because if she goes out in the real world, she's going to realize that um, nobody actually cares about that revolution and what they stood for. They just, they're living in the world that they have to live in. It's not about principles. It's, I've got to eat. I've got to find a place to live. And while she spouts all these principles in her head, especially like the first chapter is all about like the principles of, you know, um, why we make things and, and stuff in her head. That's very important. But I think to the rest of the world, it's just, you know, how am I going to eat today? Yeah. And then she was stunned by the guy. I think it was a guy. It might have been a woman, but I think it was a guy who hadn't heard a radio broadcast in several weeks because he hadn't bothered to listen to one. She she thought that. Um, the commies had the world's undivided attention, I think. And I think if you kind of like extrapolate the the revolution, if you kind of take like the, I don't know, like crypto anarchist kind of 
bent and push it to its very extreme. Um, if you, you know anybody that's kind of into that world, that is their world. That's they, they obsess about that structure and that framework. And so it makes sense that she would. Yeah. Also ham radio operators seem to have the, the, uh, the, the notion, whether correct or incorrect, that, you know, when it all falls apart, they'll be operating. They'll be uh, the emergency workers. Um, I don't know if I'm using the, the exact right words there, but uh, and, and they may well be. I'm not saying that they're not going to be, but they, this this certainly is uh, reminds me of ham, ham radio operators. See, all of that still depends on a certain level of infrastructure being physically intact and usable, which is a fairly big assumption if something is so bad that the only people who can get in communication are the hams. Well, there's kind of two sides of that coin. <laughs> um, I agree. Ham radio people in general greatly overestimate their importance um, to the point where if you go to like ham organizations and they're dealing with the emergency responders, the emergency responders are like, no, literally just pick up your cell phone and call us because that's more reliable and we're not actually listening to your radios. Um, so you could talk all you want and it doesn't matter. But at a certain point, there's a activity that most hams do um, once a year called field day. And what that is, is basically everybody gets together and emulates a complete in infrastructure collapse and, and make sure that your stuff will work in that situation. So I can see where in some ways that would work in some ways it wouldn't. Um, but yeah, they, people get fanatical about it. And so that, that definitely sets their worldview of how important they perceive themselves to be. When we're talking about worldviews and stuff, I thought it was a little both presumptuous and a little pre preposterous that she was speaking about, well, this is how commies behave. When what she really meant was, this is how I perceive that commies behave, and so I'm going to behave that way. I, I, I kind of got the impression that she may be one of the only people who was a commie that actually was in the revolution or around during the revolution. Now that um, if we're kind of going, depends on where you place her in the timeline. If she's after the revolution, then that doesn't count for her. But in my worldview or my headcanon, we'll call it that because uh, that's a great phrase. Um, she, she was there and I don't think all the commies were there. So maybe she feels like she has this place of importance where she can just kind of say what all the other commies do. Oh, see, I don't think she felt that she was very important. I think she was intentionally trying to take a sideline role by operating the repeater tower, and she even kind of made mention of that later. But the other thing um, that you just said about um, how she assumed that this was how all commies behaved because she behaved that way and nobody said anything about it, I find that highly relatable because I spent uh, two years riding motorcycles with with another guy. Most of my miles on a motorcycle I put on um, with another guy, you know, him on his bike, me on mine. And we didn't have any kind of communication except for hand signals or occasionally at stoplights and stop signs we would talk. And I assumed that we were thinking the same thing the whole time until one day very late in in this two-year period that that i was riding with him he made a hand I, he made what i thought was a hand gesture i thought he was pointing at something 
that I found very, very amusing, some oddity of road construction. And then he turned off the road real sharp, and he was telling me he was signaling a turn later. And I thought he was making a joke, and I was laughing out loud, and I almost crashed into the back of him when he turned. And he did not. it was not a conventional turn uh, hand signal for turning either so it was not just a mistake on my part it was it was a miscommunication and at that point it occurred to me that you know maybe we haven't shared as many jokes as i assumed we had over this past two years that's kind of the problem with presumed communications i signal something you receive it and interpret it and we both assume that we're on the same page you and i both being figurative terms here were for two people Right, of course. Assuming that they're on the same page about something without ever being explicit about it. And, you know, both parties act like they're both on the same page until it becomes painfully obvious that they're not. Well, and I mean, I, if we look at our community, um, just sort of the HPR, like Linux, open sourcey podcast community and IRC world that we all kind of are a part of, um, we all have these people that we've built up that we've heard or we've talked to online and we get snippets of their life and we kind of construct what we think those people are like. Um, and it, it happens every once in a while. I'll, I'll hear somebody on a show or talk to them in IRC and they'll say something. I'll be like, but that doesn't sound like that person at all. And, and I have to think to myself, like, I don't really know what they're like really at all. Um, a lot of us don't even go by our real name. So like we've, we kind of have created this personality that we represent ourselves in this virtual space, um, a lot of us never have and probably never will meet in the real world. And so I could see where the commies would kind of have that network and completely miss the mark on what each other really were like. I take issue with I, – I agree with most of what you're saying, but I take issue with – it could just be how you've said a couple of the things you've said. Uh, first of all, the whole concept of a real name. The only – how does – the name you guys see me as, X1101, how is that any less real than the name my parents chose to give me Gave chose to give me, and wrote on my birth certificate? This is a name I've chosen for myself that has meaning to me. A and rose I, by any other name would still smell as sweet. Exactly. Uh, and in most circles where I've chosen how to represent myself, this is how I represent myself. I'm not obscuring who I am at all. I'm just, I mean, people who've met me in person, you know, I, I have a hat with my name on it, this name on it, and then I'll introduce myself by my first name because I don't need to go by this name meeting someone in person. It's not about anonymity for me, but this is, it's not even a persona. This is a name and a personality that I completely have constructed myself, and so I don't see that as any less real than the legally sanctioned official name that I have written on my birth certificate. Right, but it's still possible for someone to chat with you in IRC and then meet you in real life and find that you didn't meet their expectations. Oh, completely. And then the other, and you just did it as well, the other very kind of quarrel I have with that is, how is this life any less real? I mean, I consider you guys as good of acquaintances as people I may you know, work with, even though, you know, we only talk to each other through our computers via, you know, voice chat or instant messenger and we see each other maybe once a year, just because we don't live in close proximity and we can't hang out on a Friday night doesn't – people a lot of times trivialize these relationships, I think, unnecessarily. I agree with you there. When I 
if I use the terms meet in real life or online friend, that's that's a carryover from having to talk to people in real life every day who just don't get it. But yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's 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 no less real just because it's through IRC or anything. Yeah, and when I'm talking about like real names, it's it's not like a value judgment of one is better than the other. It's just sort of actually I I tend to appreciate people's chosen names more than I appreciate their given names. I think um, it, it's it's more important that you chose this name. Uh, I've always had a problem with the fact that we get named before we are conscious of ever making any kind of decision and how that could um, impact like our whole being. So yeah, I totally, it's not a value judgment that one's better than the other. It is, there are some people and I don't think it in, is much in our community. I think it's more, the internet is large. There's some people who will create an identity just to act the way they can't act normally. Um, They're called trolls, Taj. Well, I, I have an identity sorry to act. Sorry for interrupting. I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I have an identity to act a way that I can't act, but that's because I'm not always at liberty to act on personal preference. You know, with this name and this community, I can express opinions and beliefs that, you know, I can't or I have no use for expressing, you know, in my professional life. No one cares that I'm a, I'm a free software evangelist. I'm going to use what I'm told to use and it's going to work because it has to. My preference for free software is completely not important, but it is important in my personal life. Right. And I think me and Pokey were talking about this one time before because he was asking me how, how how I wound up living in Indiana, how I wound up with the name Taj. And I, I, you know, I told him, you know, that's not actually my birth name. That's a name that um, it's actually comes from a D&D game years ago because I'm that kind of dork. Um, but what I decided, I put out some music um, because I'm, I'm I was a musician. I still am, but I don't do it as much. And I put out some music and I wanted people to judge it solely based on the music. Because I knew, kind of, in my community, people knew who I who knew who I was and knew what I was doing, and I wanted to get a totally separate read. I didn't want people to read it based on, oh, well, this guy that I've heard do other things has made this, um, and so I use it for everything online, not because I'm trying to hide anything. It's just that's the name that happens, and there are people in 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 like meat space, like the real world that come up to me and have no idea that I have another name. Like, it's just, they call me Taj because they just, that's my name. So, um, I, it's not a, names are a tricky thing. Um, just in general, actually just to tie this back into, um, Claude too, if anybody's ever heard, um, what's that podcast that he did with, um, uh, deep geek and lost in Bronx. Uh, what was it? This information, something, they only ran for a few episodes. Underground. Information Underground? Yes, that's the best podcast I've ever heard, and I've never been more pissed that it doesn't go on anymore. Um, but they had a whole episode about like names and identity that was basically the conversation we're having now, and it was awesome. And, you know, I've I've never heard any of them together, but, you know, those three names, that sounds like, you know, the All-Stars episode. Yeah, I kind of wish either they would start it up or, like, another group of people would do the same show because the format was great. Um, you just get three people in a room and just say, this is what we're going to talk about and just let them go. Um, it's just a great format for a show. I, I can't believe – I know they're all they're all super busy people, so I, I understand why they shut it down. But if I – that's kind of my one card. If I could have one podcast come back from Podfade, it would be that one. 
you know, one of them is kind of half the world away now. Howdy folks, Fake Ken Fallon here. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to remind all of you to check the show notes for a link to Taj's album. Good day, carry on. You are so baiting me. Well, you have to put the link in there now because Fake Ken Fallon said it would be there. If if fake or real Ken Fallon hears uh, what I was saying about him and his accent on uh, Linux Lugcast, he, he might be upset with me. <laughs> sure, just point him at the, the incriminating evidence, why don't you? I think they cut it out, but Hunky Magoo was like, I think I'm going to cut some of these out and put them out as HPR episodes. Are you okay with that? And I was like, yeah, as long as I wasn't insulting anybody. And he's like, well, I think I remember you saying something about not being able to understand a word Ken Fallon says when you speed things up. And I was like, no, that's cool. You can keep that in. That's funny. I speed everything up, and I can still usually understand Ken. He is the only person that it doesn't work for. I don't know what it is. It's something about his voice. Ken is an awesome person. He does great work for the community. I cannot understand his voice sped up for some reason. It's crazy. Uh, the only person I ever have issue with it, not so much in our community, not that he's not, but not as prominent, Stuart Langridge, listening to Bad Voltage. Everybody else I can follow, and then him, I'm like, I almost want to slow it back down just so that he sounds normal because I think he talks fast because, well, he gets excited about things the same way everyone else does. And then I have a really hard time following him, so I just hear this, you know, mad ranting Brit, and I'm like, oh, Stuart must have said something. I have trouble at normal speed with any New Zealander or South African. I just, I don't know, I couldn't speed those guys up. Does that include Clutton? <laughs> I should say native, any native. <laughs> I don't know. He's eating Vegemite now, so I think he's native. Wow. Is that even food? I hope he decides to get a tattoo on his face. I would so pay to see that. Because those are really the natives to New Zealand. Yeah, it's like saying we're actually Americans. Right on. Jezra, if you're listening to this, I know you've got the GIMP skills. Make this happen. <laughs> Make Klaatu a Maori. Not a Maori, for anyone who's only ever read the word. A Maori. He would be the smallest one I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Something I just had a, a thought pop into my head. Actually, re-pop into my head. This popped into my head a few minutes ago as well. But we're having the discussion about names and online relationships versus... Uh, t- to use the popular term, even though I don't agree with the real-life relationships really does remind me of, and here we go again, the uh, the Cory Doctorow book, Eastern Standard Tribe, which, it, I mean, just about how the people you're in physical proximity with don't necessarily represent the same people that you are in, you know, ideological or, you know, social proximity with, and how, how those relationships kind of play out. Yeah. If I was reduced to having to find geographically local people into the things I'm into, I would sit at home alone a lot. Yeah, I kind of do that. I don't know. I can, I, I mean, I've got friends, I've got very close friends who share none of my ideological beliefs uh, as far as software and stuff goes. Um, they could care less, you know, they, they, they're they not like they're, it's not like they're at the opposite end of the spectrum and we debate, you know, uh, all the time. It's just, they, they just, they could care less. 
you know, and I'm fine with that. I just talk about other things with them. It's just that, you know, all the, all the folks that I, that I, uh, you know, talk with online and stuff, it, it kind of, it usually comes from there. I mean, I'm part of different communities online, but I, I think that's natural when you, when you go online and, and you, you join the communities with the, uh, the communities you want to join it's like you're not forced into them and and you're not limited by any you know uh what now seems like an, an arbitrary limitation such as such as physical proximity um you mean like living in the great northern wastes yeah i mean it, or anywhere you know i mean anywhere other than like a big city where you're going to get you know a, a healthy sample of every uh everything the whole spectrum wide um you know online i mean you're you're not going to find me on a white supremacist website because i have no interest in in what those people have to say you know just that kind of thing so online it's just kind of natural that you flock towards uh people of like mind what is this big city you speak of i have to travel many many years to many many miles to get to one of those well, your your uh, shared hosting is probably in one. Yeah, probably. I live not too far from a really big one, and they're not all they're cracked up to be. Yeah, I I don't think that by most standards, the state that I live in has a big city. Yeah, Portland's a small city. Anyway, back to the book. We're <laughs> we're, we're pretty rat old here. The quasi book club. Don't we always do that? Yeah, I don't know if we've ever gone this far off track though. I say that almost every month. We're awesome like that. Word. The book-inspired discussion club. That's actually pretty accurate, I think. But hey, we pick books that make us think, and then we follow those thoughts to wherever they take us. Yeah, well, certain books that we've reviewed do that. They're thinkers, and then other books, um, you know, are more story-based, I think. And, and of course, others have been more character-based. So, it, you know, it's all – there's different kinds of stories. But we have, were talking earlier. I do, did find it really interesting that they were using these free software licenses to map onto social contracts. And being the little bit of a license nerd that I am, I would have found it really interesting to see how exactly they mapped those because you know, GPL and – well, also the BSD Berkeley style licenses, almost all of those those rights or responsibilities are triggered on distribution, and I would be really interested to see how they're triggering that, as far as you know land usage goes. That would be really fascinating. I'm glad you brought up the licenses thing because while I read that the first time, my little like nerd heart exploded in happiness. Like I probably audibly squeed, but at the same time, I'm like, this is really on the nose. Like anybody who's picking this book up is going to be like nerds. Yeah, it felt a little contrived in that sense. Like, like it was aimed at the target audience, you know, laser focused. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't unexpected or unwelcome at the same time, you know what I mean, in, in the setting that it was in. Um, I thought the cranks were really interesting because uh, to me, it, it seemed like if there was a total societal collapse, most of society would be the cranks, whereas in this story, the cranks were the exception. But once again, going back to is that just the narrator's perception that the, most of the world is civilized and most of them are cranks or is it really mostly cranks and she just lives on a hill? 
Well, and again, that assumes that you use a given definition for civilized and cranks. I mean, the whole world could be, by some standards, uncivilized. But by their standards, they were a functioning society that had a few outliers who chose not to participate. And there was a distinction made between cranks and troublemakers. And it seemed like the distinction really was, well, troublemakers do it for money, and cranks just do it because they just do it. Or fun. Well, well, I think the cranks were, I guess the distinction I had were troublemakers were there. I'm having a hard time articulating the, the troublemaker side of things, but the cranks seemed like they were doing things out of greed. They wanted to take what you had, and the troublemakers weren't so much doing that as, well, disrupt, be, just being generally disruptive and doing overall dangerous things. They were like the worldwide A-team or something. Ah, the cranks were NPCs and the troublemakers were PCs. Bringing it back old school, I like it. Yep, exactly. Yeah, the cranks lived that way because that's how they lived. That's how they got by. The troublemakers, um, they seemed to have their own job. They were just always down for a little bit of adventure, a little bit of fun. Um, you know, for whatever reason, whatever their motivation was, they still wanted to be part of... Uh, what our narrator called society. So, but they didn't mind going on an adventure. And that's why they kind of reminded me of, of, you know, PCs, player characters. So I, in my mind, I'm kind of thinking like, if we're, if we're thinking hacker in like the broad, like I didn't know nothing about computer hacker terminology, if that's the basis of the society. So like the troublemakers are kind of like the black hats. They just go out to stir up some trouble. I, saw the Morris gray hats they're they're curious as to what trouble's gonna gonna arise and why not be part of it because at least we'll have a story to tell hey what's this button do ooh shiny somebody's gonna blow something up it might as well be me I, I think that's their kind of their attitude I got nothing but respect for that attitude especially the blowing stuff up part who doesn't love blowing stuff up as long as no human beings are harmed in the action. I was going to say, it depends what stuff. There's plenty of YouTube videos of fingers getting blown up. Nobody I know doesn't like that. And then towards the end of the book, you know, I thought it was... I thought it dipped a little too utopian to be believable when she was describing, you know, uh, like she was imposing the Unix philosophy on to human beings, like find one thing and do it well. And then, you know, specified a few things like planting seeds where someone else would harvest them. I just don't think that would work where somebody gets to sit around for 11 months and then, you know, for one month plant some seeds and then, eh, well, somebody else likes picking stuff more. So I'll let them do it. I, that I just, you know, I, I couldn't follow that line of the story and it and it kind of hurt that it was right at the end <laughs> that it went there hell unix doesn't even follow the unix philosophy particularly well why would people be able to yeah i think out of necessity humanity has had to be good at multiple things to survive because um, even though we build communities a lot of the time in the not too distant past people were pretty much reliant on themselves 
Um, so you may have a small group of people who are more valuable in certain areas, but really you kind of had to be good at a lot of skills to where I kind of feel like this world would be going back in that direction to where you have to be more of a generalist to make it. Yeah, I think, I think we're more specialized today than in, than in the world that, that I saw in this book. Um, now that description at the end was a bit too granular for my own comfort, but, uh, in general, the rest of the book, I, I, I thought that people were, were good at everything. Whereas nowadays, okay, you find your, your one thing that you're good at and you do it well. Okay. That becomes your task at work or, you know, maybe you're good at grocery shopping. So you do that at home while your, you know, domestic partner does the cooking or, or someone else does the cleaning, or maybe you're good at sharing those tasks. So you do that. So I don't know, just to me, it felt like we were a little more specialized now than, than in this story. Yeah. And I'm all for specialization. I focused on the thing I do well. And then when I need something else done, I find someone who does that well and I ask them to do it because they know a lot more about it than I do. But pick one thing. I can't pick one thing. There are two or three things that I do well enough that I do it well and enjoy it. And I couldn't just do one thing. That sounds really boring. Yeah, and I don't think it was meant to be a rule either that, you know, hey, listen, if you're the guy that plants seeds, that's all you're allowed to do. I I don't think that's quite what it meant either, but it just, it felt like it got too granular there. Well, and I mean, that's one of the, I guess, more utopian ideals is that you could have sort of an artisan society where everybody was super talented at one skill that they did because they enjoyed it instead of, you know, just having to make do. Um, I think we have to be generalist out of survival, not um, in in this world, um, the way that she's looking at it, y- your, your survival needs would be met and you could do what you wanted to do. Almost the same conversation we were having last month about, um, you know, sort of that post-scarcity. What do you do when you when your basics are covered and you can do whatever you want? I think it's a, it's a really cool idea. I, I think in practicality, especially with the society that they're in, it's just probably not doable. It's a good thing to kind of work towards, but not practical. But they were almost trying to map that post-scarcity lifestyle into a hyper-scarcity world, even more scarce than we live in now. Yes. Yeah, that, that I noticed several times. And I, I mentioned it earlier is, you know, all the, the canned foods seem to be limitless. It just as soon as someone found it, everybody got it. It, it. Almost like you could have your cake and eat it too. I wanted to bring up something nobody's kind of hit on yet. Um, the quasi-religion of the God stream. And like that whole thread is fascinating to me. And Dev, no. Yeah, those are both pretty interesting um it it felt like dev null was a concept whereas the god stream was something uh well I, i hesitate to use the word tangible but i can't think of a better one at the moment it was an actual like frequency rather than the idea of a dev null right i kind of like mapped it to once again going to my experience um you can actually set a receiver to kind of tune in between channels. And a lot of that noise is either directly or my understanding of it. And I'm not a physicist is, is literally leftover 
signals from the Big Bang, like the cosmic background radiation. Um, and so I thought that that was cool that if that's what it is that they're talking about, that somebody was trying to hijack that to kind of store data in or, or, or move data across to kind of almost um, kind of like sell out your God to, to get something done. I mean, I guess that philosophical thing, the selling out your deity of choice to get something done was very much there, but it was almost like trying to hide or store data in 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 pi, which is I, I read this really interesting thing at one point that pi is infinite and that infinite non-repeating and that means everything that has ever happened or ever will happen is somewhere in pi. And that's really kind of mind bending, but so, I mean, if you kind of take that idea and map it to the God stream, everything is there if you can find it. And then trying to add a carrier signal of data to that would be both really weird and really difficult. That and just the fact that to me, it's that she's so um, reverent towards it and that she she cannot help but like be a human being and like try to pattern recognize it and pull pieces out and try to recognize things. Like she says, it sounds like the rain and then it, you know, this, and really it's probably just her, you know, mind playing tricks on her. But like for her, like she says, she just keeps going back to it and she finds something in that. And, you know, what does that mean? Is, is that, you know, just her, self alone time and her kind of contemplating things or is there some meaning there that she's finding well i mean that's like asking is there meaning in in the white noise because that's really what their god's dream was is just atmospheric white noise and who's to say there is or isn't Right, it's like saying, does God have any meaning? you know, (laughs) you can ask a thousand people and you're going to get different answers from every single one that's really amusing because I'm reading in addition to all the stuff I'm doing with book club and listening to I'm reading a stranger in a strange land by uh, Robert Heinlein and it's the the interpretation of God in that story is really really peculiar and I fascinating I just find like to me I, I, I think about once again going back at this kind of business extrapolation of kind of hacker culture um you know, I, not all of us, I don't want to generalize a great deal, but it seems like a lot of us are very rational, skeptical people. Um, there are a lot of people who are just blatantly atheist. I'm not one of those people, but there, there are a lot of people who subscribe to that. But even in the society that's based on that, that like, even then there's still people trying to find meaning in something is interesting to me. And it's almost like they're trying to create a spirituality out of the, the technical logical world because of the complete lack thereof in the rest of society. Yeah, and it's like when you start thinking about, like, emergent uh, AIs and things like that, it's like, you know, is there a point where things are so ordered that they become disordered, and what comes from that? So was the God stream a specific thing was it a real thing or was it just her imagination and the and the pattern recognition that that x1101 just mentioned i got that it was a little of both it was untuning the radio tuning it to a 
non-frequency, something where there wasn't transmitting, so you were picking up background radiation and calling it the god stream and finding meaning there was the humans looking for meaning where there may or may not be one. And I think it's a thing. Like, I think other people know about it because the characters mention it to each other. So I think it's a, it's an actual physical thing. I think she reads more into it than others may because obviously um, Ricker is definitely like, this is a thing I could use. Like, he doesn't have that reverence for it that she does. Like, she, to her, it's almost this adulteration of something that's pure. Um, it, it's almost like literally like... Um, a religious hate crime to her to, to do that. Um, but for him, it's just, okay, I, I can do this. And it's just an object that I can use to get done what I want to do. Yeah. I was confused as to how he was encrypting his signal and embedding it in there. Was he mimicking the God stream? Was he like, I, I didn't get that, but I just kind of took it for granted and moved on. If you've ever heard like data over, uh, over like radio transmissions a lot of them can sound like you know static or chirping or something and i guess if you came up with your own encryption you could make it sound similar enough to where um it would be pretty hard to distinguish it from the background um unless you knew what you were looking for yeah well, okay take a text file and then cat it to like dev speaker or something the equivalent to your audio device and listen to what it sounds like and i think that is the idea because huh. that's one of my actual like interests in ham radio is um more data like i i'm i very rarely get on and actually like voice talk to people um I, what i find interesting is getting in and you can find these data streams and you just kind of jump in and start talking to the people in the data stream and it's kind of cool i mean it's it's literally like irc without any wires which you know it's just a fundamental law of nature which is kind of cool so IRC over ham radio? Similar. Um, you know, you, you basically get into a text chat with one person and then, you know, you could get multiple people in there, I guess, if you wanted. I've never actually done that myself. But just the idea that you can make those contacts and just sort of, you know, and chill out. And, you, you know, if you wanted to meet a certain group of people at a certain frequency at a certain time, there's no, re I, I don't see any reason that I know of. And that could be my lack of experience just getting into the hobby the last couple of years, you could literally just spin up a kind of a real quick chat room on, on radio waves, which is kind of cool. Well, the only thing I see there is there's not a facility unlike with IRC to give someone the permission to manage is the best word I can think of manage that. You know, if in IRC, if I am in a specific channel, not behaving by the established rules, the channel moderator can kick me out. I, I can't imagine that there would be a similar analogy in, you know, the ham radio other than people just ignoring. Is, is there anyway. a way to, sorry, touch. Is there a way to tell whose signal is coming from who so that, you know, it's, it's collisions would be, you know, automatically uh, separated out or is there anything like that too? That would have to, so like what you're talking about doing is a net, and I've not done any kind of digital nets. I'm sure they exist, um, but like in a voice net, you have a net control, and that person um, literally says, okay, this call sign go, this call sign go, this call sign go. Um, you could in 
you could do the same thing with digital because every time you send a, a message, you you know should probably be sending your um, call sign with that. Um, just so you can keep it straight. If it was just you and somebody else, I think you only have to ID every 10 minutes. But um, I know when I do it, I, I ID every time just in case. Um, so, I mean, if you had a group of people who wanted to do that, you could set up a system to do that. But it has to be agreed upon by everybody else. Um, the only kind of enforcing um, entity that is there is the FCC. And that's just, you know, I have my uh, opinions about the FCC. I, I think it's ridiculous that I have to apply for a license to utilize a fundamental fundamental law of nature. Um, but I guess they do serve a purpose in some way. Well, I mean, you can copyright, uh, you can patent software, which is just math. So why shouldn't you have to register for a license to use the radio waves? Because I don't agree with that either. Yeah, I was being cynical and sarcastic. Sorry, if that wasn't obvious. Devil's Advocate. I hate the devil. I really need uh, K5 Tux on here to, like, straighten me out on some of this ham radio stuff, because he's much better at it than me. He's got a credit in this book, too, and I I forget what exactly he's credited as, uh, but I think his voice is in there at some point. Yeah, it's in there, so I I could not find it. I actually kind of actively listened for it, and I don't know where it was, um, or even would venture to say where it would be. I heard Mrs. 64, though. She's right at the end. I was told to look out for her, and I I forgot that I was supposed to, but then I I picked it up right at the end and heard her. That's uh, Peter 64's wife. Yeah, I don't know what she sounds like, so I wouldn't have known it was her if I heard it. She sounds Australian and female. Well, that only narrows it down to a couple million people. Yeah, but only one in this particular audiobook. Fair enough. So how about the, uh, I guess, the antagonist in this book, the the pirate radio tower? Um, That seemed weird, like that they could move that many resources to that spot. Now, I mean, maybe they found some of it there, but they, I didn't get the impression that they found all of it there. Uh, They must have moved some of it to where it's at. And and if you look at radio towers that exist nowadays, they're all at the peaks of the mountains. They're not like halfway down the mountain. So this isn't something that was left over. They This is something they, they put there. And it just seemed odd that they moved so much equipment and so many, uh, you know, power stations and transformers over there. Well, it seemed like there was a whole, a whole separate group that was interested in, in what was going down there. Um, but yeah, it does seem like a lot to put together for, especially in this world where everything is pretty separated out and far distances, like a radio transmitter, like a, like a broadcast radio transmitter. That's not something you're going to move around without a car or a big truck. That and they talked about how the cranks that were protecting it must've been hired hands. And, And what was the the currency how were they paid for you know it just doesn't seem like the the uh, the army in charge at that station would have you know acquired much in in terms of uh you know physical goods some some sort of barter currency um to pay for their time and all that material and you know the 
lugging it all there as well. That was a little a little odd for, for something that isn't, uh, you, you know, it's not tangible. His his goal, his ultimate goal was was pretty esoteric as far as these people were concerned. You know, they were kind of Luddites. But I think his goal was to create a network of basically, it, it seemed like, wanted to eventually go worldwide. And once you do that, you start to open the world of globalization and trade across large distances that it, it seems like is not possible at this point. So maybe saying, hey, look, we're going to start another revolution and you can get on on the ground floor of this one and you might come out looking pretty good at the end of this. Yeah, I don't know. The cranks didn't seem to be the the kind of folks that appreciated the concept of delayed gratification. But maybe now I'm just nitpicking. That's what we do. It's a curse and a gift. Mostly a curse, I think. Yeah, I, I I don't like that it often seems like I'm nitpicking these stories so much when I actually like them, you know what I mean? And, and maybe it sounds like I, I dislike the story, but I didn't. I really did like this one. Well, just kind of sharing something that you had sent out to the people on the, the audiobook club. We've had one author come on, and we've had um, two authors respond. And it seems like everybody has been fairly happy with what we've said. Um, I think most people take it all right. Well, that's well, good. I would, well, I would hope if you're to the point where you're authoring something and releasing it, you can, you've already gotten past the editing phase and can deal with critiques and criticism and different interpretations and other people kind of mentally exploring the world that you've created because if you're writing a story you're creating this world for other people to explore right i mean and i think we all understand you can be critical of something and and not be mean about it i don't think anybody has openly said like god this book sucks don't ever read this like don't waste your time um you could read toilet paper and it's more interesting like that's not how we roll no, yeah, we did, though. There was a book that we we kind of did that, too. Okay, that's not how we roll since I showed up, so... <laughs> yeah. Blame it on Pokey. You, you can blame it all on me, that's fine. Well, it's weird, though, because it's like... I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it's easy for me to find the things that I was critical about, but then when I try to find something that I like to, to talk about, I usually wind up talking about, you know, some, some, I usually wind up going down some rat hole instead of talking about the actual thing, the, the, the piece of the story. So I, I think that's just me, though. Well, maybe that's because the things you like are the things that made you think and consider and sent your mind down those rat holes. And so the things that you like are the things that make you think about other things rather than the specific story that it's telling. Yeah, that's true. It does. I do like a story that, that, makes me wonder about uh you know second and third and and fourth order ramifications of things and and where is the author going with this or, or what what seed did this sprout from I, I do like those kind of things about a book but i also do like a good story and this was a good story you know the character interactions while they were all just lying to each other the whole time it was kind of a neat adventure that they went on uh you know walking from city to city and and you know wandering the countryside and up mountains and down mountains. I thought it was all, you know, a, a fun story to go through and just the different people that they met and uh, and how all that related to the world that they lived in. I liked all that too. Yeah, I think this is a book that, uh, for me, is much more about ideas than it is the 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 
plot narrative. I think the plot narrative sets up the world that, that it's in. But like I said at the beginning, I I find myself much more interested in the implications of the world than I am um, the particular characters. Because I think the characters go from a, a beginning point and they go to an ending point. Like, if you came to me and said, hey, would you like a sequel to this book that deals with Ender? I would say no. If you came to me and said, would you like a sequel set in this world that had nothing to do with those characters? I might be open to it, but I think just the story of those characters is done and I'm cool with that. Like it's a very easy, not, I won't say easy to write, but just like a very, very finished story. Like it goes from point A to point B and it, it's, it's pretty much settled up. I mean, it's open that she's going to go out and do this, but I don't need to see it. Like I've got to that point of kind of catharsis, like, okay, she's dealing with her past and that's cool. And I'm sure she'll have great adventures, but I don't need to see them to be okay. That's kind of what I meant by that's part of what I meant rather when I was saying that the world is painted with broad strokes where there's all of this rich detail that's kind of hinted at just enough that you can put it together yourself in the way that makes the most sense to you to flesh out the world and give it, you know, the rest of its skin and bones to make it a little more whole without the story actually being missing anything at the same time. Right. I would love to see somebody play in this world that isn't somebody attached to the revolution. Like, to just follow, like, a regular dude or, you know, anybody and just see what the world's like to them and just see the alternate perspective of what this looks like. I think that would be interesting. Like a story about a crank, maybe? Yeah, just some, just something, like, I, I don't even think you should do, like, another novel. I think it should just be, like, I think a short story set in this world would be really interesting to see from a different perspective. Um, just because we, we kind of keep coming back to that. That's kind of a theme we've all three of us have talked about and kind of gone back and forth about is, you know, what of what we are seeing in this book is reality or what if is, is framed by the beliefs of the characters. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> running the text chat here, everybody's asking if uh, anybody's got anything else to say, and I think I think we're all talked out on this one. Um, overall, we seem to have liked it. Seemed to all have been a little bit confused about it, but everybody seemed to enjoy the confusion as well. So, uh, yeah, definite thumbs up now that we're done with it. And um, if anyone listened all the way through this episode and didn't listen to the book, I'd still recommend you do, because uh, there's, there's plenty left there. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that we all enjoyed it and that it was very thought-provoking. And I think if you listen to our spoilers and you haven't read the book and you go to read the book, I think you'll be surprised at how it probably plays out very different from what you are expecting based on the spoilers. Because I don't think we spoiled the plot that much, as in so much dug into a lot of the questions that the plot, certain plot points asked. Yeah, and none of us is is uh, telling a story like Seth tells a story either. I mean, in a way, we all got to, to play in the world he created. That's a good way to look at it, because we all seem to have a different experience with it as well, even though we, we all delved down rat holes at kind of the same point. We, we came up with different, uh, what, treasures or whatever. And all those rat holes and what you get out of them are very much based on what perspective you have coming in, much as the the narrator's perspective 
informs her worldview, so does the reader slash listener's perspective inform their own view of the world that's created. That's a very cool way of thinking about it. Yeah, it makes sense to me. All right, so uh, for next audiobook club, uh, we're looking at a recording date of September 9th, 2014, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern time in the, the mumble room, in the HPR mumble room. Those details can be found on the, uh, the Hacker Public Radio webpage or in the mailing list. And I don't know them offhand, so I'm not going to attempt to repeat them here. Uh, yep. And the next audiobook that we'll be reviewing is Street Candles by David Collins Rivera, who is also a Hacker Public Radio community member. That's uh, Lost in Bronx is his online handle. And um, I've heard this whole thing. I, I, I listened to it all before it was suggested, and I love it. I can't wait to do a, a book club review of this one. If I get finished with the uh, Street Candles, is the first portion, Star Drifter, is that good enough that it's worth listening to as well? Oh yeah, for sure. I kind of figured, based on how good Street Candles has been so far. I actually want to go back as soon as I finish Street Candles, because I think I know more about Ejok from the second book that's going to make that first book a whole lot better if I reread it. I wonder if his RSS feed works, because I know that one of the uh, one of the David's on the mailing list, and I had to work with uh, Boston Bronx to get the RSS feed working for Street Candles. It, before that, it was not correctly set up. Some of the enclosure tags weren't right. The last post I saw on the mailing list um, was Lost in Bronx saying that it, it was now fixed. Um, and even before it was working 100% correctly, if you had any problems getting it, um, G Potter downloaded it just fine. If you added it uh, as an RSS feed, down them all, I believe worked. I'm pretty sure I grabbed. Uh, I don't think I grabbed the whole thing with it, but portions of it. And there was another podcatcher that was uh, eating it just fine. I, I forget what that was. I think Dogcatcher had a problem with it, which is uh, the end. One of the Android clients. Yeah, as, as I think I've said almost every month on here, I use Pocket Casts, and Pocket Casts was just choking on it because. Only like three or four of the entries had enclosure tags, which is the official way that RSS uh, can handle media files. A lot of the other ones seem to have some smarts built into them that if the enclosure tags are missing, it simply provides the audio file located at the link tag. But uh, David um, fixed and I tested out his fix for it that corrected it so that all the, the files point at the enclosure correctly. Excellent. Thanks for helping out with that. Well, I had meant to fix it, but, you know, all those people in the UK who get out of work before I do got to it first. <laughs> and I would like to thank everybody who helped me straighten out my show notes uh, for the last show. And I basically just we've used them as a template for this show. Um, I knew nothing about HTML, but I just kind of, you know, copied and pasted and, and uh interpreted and learned as I could and I, I had some help from plenty of people um, X1101 you helped uh, Rill helped David helped who's uh, now I can't remember which David that was but yeah lots of people helped me out straightening out my my HTML even though it was very 
basic HTML. I, I managed to screw it up really badly at first, but it seems to be working pretty good now and, and looking good for the show notes. So our show notes look better than they used to uh, for this episode and the previous one. And I just want to give a shout out to Taj for providing the, uh, is that ether, is it an etherpad instance or some kind of uh, collaborative editing? We've all been writing the show notes as we do it. And that's been fantastic. Yeah. Um, I threw up etherpad on my server at home and that's what we've been using. And I want to thank K Wisher because um, we were talking about it the other night and I couldn't get it couldn't figure out why it wasn't facing outward and i'm not going to say why it isn't because it's the dumbest mistake in the world and it makes me look like amateur but uh he definitely talked me through and got it fixed port forwarding damn it <laughs> which is just a function of natting it etherpad is awesome we have to do an episode on this i i would really like to uh do a collaborative episode with you if at some point if you don't mind because this is really cool. Let's Book club, behind the scenes. Special edition. Maybe we can do something like that around Christmas time. That'd be cool. Yeah, I mean, we, you, we've we used Etherpad before. Someone had one, I think it might have been Kevin Wisher's, I think it was his, that we used at the, um, the last New Year's Eve show, the 24-hour show. And that was really fun, too. I can't get over how useful it is for something like this. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I originally put it up to do that. Once again, going to the nerd place, um, doing uh, role playing games at my house, and so everybody at my house would get on the collaborative document and kind of edit it as we went along and add stuff. And it was kind of like a history of what we were doing. Um, but yeah, this is this is fantastic, and uh, we can. My server is always on because it's basically how I sync things because I don't want to use Google. Um, so it's 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 open to us whenever we need it. Man, now that you found out that it's good for RPGs, I may have to set one up. Dude, it is fantastic. You ever like you, you make up those NPCs and you can't remember the names? You could totally just go back and look. It's awesome. Yeah, see, that would be implying that I give them names. You're a bad GM. Thug one, thug two, thug three. That dude with the face in the bar in that one place. If if the NPC's name is not relevant, it's thug one. Doesn't that kind of spoil his role just a little bit if you weren't sure yet? Nope, he's just a thug. You just don't be like, uh, you walk up and talk to Thug One, and he says... Well, that's awesome. Alright, I want to thank everyone for listening, for making it all the way through this episode. We rat-holed quite a bit, but I think the story is one that lended itself to that, and uh, you know, Good Company does as well, which, which we've definitely had here tonight. Please, as I said before, join us September... 8th? No, 9th. September 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on, uh, on on Mumble for the review of Street Candles by David Collins Rivero or Lost in Bronx. Feel free to go purchase the ebook version of that one as well if you want to help support him. Uh, that's, that's always something fun and cool to do you know, with pals of ours in the community. It's, it's, it's one that we've all enjoyed. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you guys for being part of this again. You know, it's not something that would be any fun to do alone, nor would it be any fun to listen to. So you guys make the show and it, it's, it's awesome of you to do that. No worries. I enjoy doing it. Yeah. I mean, this is, I look forward to this the whole month. It's literally become a thing in my family where my wife is like, so when is the audio book club? 
I mean, for me, it's an excuse to get a nice, interesting new beer and pull up in the basement and chat with some cool people. You got spouse approval? That is awesome. Yeah, me too. Yeah, kind of. It's it's okay. She's just like, so when are you going to hold yourself up in the office for a couple hours? Patch Tuesday, honey. I'll be here Patch Tuesday. I'm not even allowed to use my office because it's uh, back to the little girl's room and uh, my voice carries. Yeah, I've got spouse tolerance, not quite spouse approval. But uh, all right, thanks everyone. We're, we got to wrap it up. We got to cut it off, or we're just going to keep going like this. Um, but I guess that's what you do when uh, people you like get together. So thanks again, everyone, and have a good night. Later, folks. Later, guys. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.